Hello, I'm Jack Shilito and welcome to My Aunt Mabel, Episode 3. In this episode, we'll look at how Mabel broke into broadcasting, how she fought her corner a hundred years ago to ensure she was paid equally, becoming a tough negotiator in the process, and we'll look at her seemingly infinite creative output. In 1924, John Reith, the BBC's General Manager and later its first Director General, said Most of the good things in this world are badly distributed and most people will have to go without them. Wireless is a good thing, but it may be shared by all alike, for the same outlay and to the same extent. The genius and the fool, the wealthy and the poor, listen simultaneously. There is no first and third class. Being shared by all alike rings true for TV, streaming, YouTube and so on. Switch out the word wireless for YouTube and it's not so different. Though I'm not sure YouTube execs would opt for describing their viewers as fools. For Mabel's part, she helped to evolve radio from an amateur adventure into a professional, respected and popular medium. But were women widely involved with radio, or was Mabel on her own? Here's Jen. In the 1920s, um, at the very beginning of the BBC, uh, being a woman on the radio was a bit of, uh, of an exception, being a performer, uh, being involved in this new technology. Um, it was much more of a male-dominated um, technology and industry. Uh, but even at that, sort of when you look back at the programming for what was going on on the BBC at the time, there's a lot of women who were there. So I don't think that Mabel was unique in, in that sense. What made it challenging for women at the time, for somebody like Mabel in particular, um, was this notion of respectability and um, uh, being a public individual. And so, you know, a respectable woman is a woman at that time who you don't see um, unless you see with her family or her husband or, um, you know, some sort of uh, you know, son or, or, or male companion. It was challenging for women, especially middle-class women like Mabel, uh, upper-middle-class women like Mabel, um, to be an entertainer. But what radio did, and I think helped her out, and she says this in her autobiography, she says, you know, behind um, this sort of, the, the, I can't, behind the blessed microphone, I think is how she said it, she can be whoever she wants to. On the microphone, you don't see her. Despite Mabel being one of the few female broadcasters, she certainly wasn't alone and was probably more at home on the BBC than in a variety performance, as Jilly explains. There were lots of female performers around in different contexts, but I think what's interesting in these kind of early nascent days of the BBC and of broadcasting was that there were a lot of women coming from magazine, from that kind of culture, print culture, that were also coming to broadcasting. So I think I think there were there weren't that many women around, but Again, it had the BBC in its early broadcasting days was so experimental. I think it was quite different for her when she went on to the variety scene and she started appearing live in theatres. I think that must have been very strange for her because what she seems to express in her autobiography in Treads and Patches 
is it was more to do with the class differentiation that was complicated for her in Variety. And I don't think it was complicated for her in the BBC because I think the BBC did seem to, certainly the women, they were all pretty middle class. Val Gilgood, head of radio drama at the BBC, recognised the importance of comedy and noted in 1932 that Miss Constant proved that it is perfectly possible to write humour indigenous to the microphone. But so far, no one has emulated her in the field of the broadcast play. This field of broadcast comedy lies practically virgin before all aspirants to honours in writing plays for broadcasting. Quite a convoluted way of saying it, but there we go. Mabel was already in her 40s when she made her first solo broadcast for the BBC. By 1925, Mabel was 45 years old, a wife and mother of eight-year-old Michael, when her professional life began. Her first featured broadcast appears in records for 1st of May of that year, just three months since she first braved the audition at the BBC. She says, I was offered my first solo broadcast in the spring of 1925. I went to see Kenneth Wright, who said they were prepared to pay two guineas for five minutes broadcast, provided that the material was original and that the BBC would not have to pay any copyright for it. Soon after this, my friend K.H. Wright sent for me again and told me that he thought I was not being paid enough and that they proposed to raise my fee to three guineas. A few weeks later still, they sent for me again and told me that they proposed to make me a star, which meant five guineas. According to the website Mislaid Comedy Heroes, Mabel has the status of being the first comic to be paid the handsome sum of five guineas a show by the BBC. To give you a rough idea of what that money equates to today, two guineas is around £43, or three days wages for a skilled tradesman at the time. Not bad to get the same amount of pay for a five minute broadcast. Five guineas is an even greater difference of course, the equivalent of 15 days work for a skilled tradesman at the time. A day in the country by Mabel followed on the 18th of July, with Mabel being named as an individual performer and entertainer. The first record of a comedy sketch by Mabel Constantjuris is dated September 14, 1925, and she must have impressed because by the following year she signed her first contract as a writer on 19th of January 1926, when a fee of 10 guineas was agreed for the play Devoted Elsie. Billed as a radio comedy, it was broadcast in February of that year with Mabel as the eponymous Elsie, working in the kitchen with the cook where, to help pass the time away whilst hard at work, they discussed with vital interest Mr. Arold. Elsie's admiration of Mr. Arold is beyond description. Here's Carolyn talking about how Mabel's personality shone through her performances, which allowed her to connect with audiences in the early days of radio. In the 1920s and 30s, there was a lot of discussion about the nature of radio, because radio, um, radio drama didn't start really until the mid 1920s in earnest. Um, and people didn't, didn't really entirely know um, what radio was. And so they spent quite a lot of time discussing it and analyzing 
what it was and what it was that made it appealing, what radio might be. Um, there was a lot of discussion as to how, for, for example, how radio could help people who were illiterate because they could engage with complex ideas without necessarily having to be able to read. Um, so there were all kinds of ideas about taking culture to the masses, um, kind of high powered culture that you needed to be educated to understand to the masses. Um, but of course, Mabel uh, cut through all of that in that she had the one thing that um, a lot of the, the news article writers at the time thought was really important and that was personality and that on radio because you couldn't see who was speaking it was very important that the voice had personality um, and I would argue that uh, Mabel's, Mabel's many voices uh, and the personalities of her characters that came through in the voice were one of the things that made her so successful. Um, and then later when she was uh, working on screen, um, again, that kind of her own personality shone through her characters um, in a way that made her very appealing to audiences. Mabel forged a particular kind of freedom for herself during a period that gave unprecedented opportunities to middle-class women in the interwar years. Having found her voice, or voices, she was clearly a hard bargainer, a determined professional, an engaging, generous friend, and an affectionate employer. As a writer and entertainer, she has a remarkable grasp of the new medium of radio. As she says, Here is a new kind of entertainment, immensely important because it's within the reach of everybody, which needs a special technique in writing. It would seem a better policy to encourage authors to understand it to write new radio material, which should be acted by people who understand radio. There are all sorts of thought leaders, trend spotters and thinkers in the media industry today. But how's that for a bit of industry insight a hundred years ago about the way the media world is going? In an article in the 1933 BBC yearbook about the need to recruit new talent for variety, the list of essential attributes of worthy candidates was very much male-oriented. Number one, he is thoroughly trained in microphone work. He can work with or without an audience. Number two, he takes the trouble to prepare special material and renew his material. Number three, he is instinctively aware of BBC standards and gives us the type of material suited for our mixed audience. Number four, eventually he appears on the stage or screen as a BBC star and if he is a good artist, does indirect propaganda for us. It's no surprise then that Mabel felt compelled to strenuously defend her position as a professional, both in her correspondence with the BBC and with the public. So what was Mabel's approach in a male-dominated profession? Here's Carolyn. One of the reasons that she succeeded at the time, although the BBC was such a terribly sexist place, um, was that she was very nice to men. She was very nice to the people that she worked with. She, she would write a tough letter if she wanted somebody to pay her money that they owed her. Um, but she uh, was very sociable. And, you know, she would meet Val Gilgood for lunch and, you know, they would, they would uh, have nice chats. And um, 
she was she was very very charming um, and rather glamorous, and I think that kind of endeared her to uh, a lot of the men that she was working with. Who, um, when you read the letter, this uh, to and from uh, Mabel and Val Gilbert particularly, there's a lot of warmth and and sort of genuine friendliness between them. Um, so I think she had a very different approach to the approach of someone like Hilda Matheson, um, who was there at the same time, although working in a different department. But bearing in mind that at the time that the two women would have been working, working in very close proximity because Savoy Hill, which is where they were working, um, there were only a very few people working there and it was just two studios. Two, two studios and a bar, basically, where they might be able to go get a whiskey and soda. It was a, it was a gentleman's club. And Mabel was, uh, you know, she was she was actressy and rather attractive and glamorous in a way that that Hilda really wasn't, um, and that Hilda Matheson would go head to head in terms of arguments with men, and she would really stand up for herself. But Mabel was much more subtle and uh, she fitted in with the status quo and she, the way that she was subversive was very much through her work. When Mabel learned her solo writing was not compensated as much as when she partnered with men, she understandably complained. I still think I'm being paid too little. A musical show is much more trouble to write than a straight one and I don't see why when Dennis and I separately get one guinea an hour for what we write and Howard and I get sometimes more, why I alone should be paid less. I am the most experienced writer of the three with 18 years of writing for the air, as much possibly as any author writing. And nobody has ever kept up this standard I believe for so long. As Jilly says, it must have been odd for the men at the receiving end of these letters to have such demands made by women. You have to put yourself in the position of the men at the time. They didn't expect women to make those demands. I mean, that was an absurd suggestion. You know, usually if you were married, you weren't employable by the BBC. Actually, I think that came in later. But the very fact that she was she was writing and producing, which they were quite happy to use. But it must have been very extraordinary and very alien to them. I think the points at which she got really furious was when they used her work without permission. And she was very quick to write and say, that's mine. You're, you know, you're using that and I want to be paid for it. But the other one was when she was writing with someone else and because he was a man, he was being paid more. And that's where she really drew the line. And I think that's, uh, very clear, and I don't think it was totally resolved to her satisfaction. But I think her sense that she didn't get the recognition as a woman did, did smart for her several times. And Mabel wasn't alone. The idea of a more equal society was coming to the fore, as just a few years before, in 1928, 15 million women gained the right to vote on equal terms with men. While it might seem like a long time ago, the drive for equality was gathering momentum and Mabel was right in the mix. Here's Julie again. We say it was a long time ago, but of course also suffrage and the whole kind of um, drive for equality from the suffrage movement 
was much closer to memory than it is now. The weird thing is we've sort of slipped out. The equality thing has risen again in the last 10, 15 years. But certainly when I started teaching um, as, a, as a sort of latecomer to academia, when I started teaching in 2001, the girls were kind of going, oh, but we've got equality. What are you talking about? We are equal. And it's taken quite a long time for those questions of equality and equal pay and equal recognition to, to come up again. But so in one sense, she was nearer the battle for equality then than we are now. As a performer of her own material, Mabel argued for the right to perform outside the BBC, claiming copyright for the commercial exploitation of her most enduring character creation, Grandma Buggins. Just a reminder that this is the 1920s and 30s we're talking about. Not a couple of years or decades ago, Mabel had the commercial nous to exploit her work beyond the confines of the BBC. That's pretty impressive. Mabel and her nephew Dennis were a successful writing partnership, creating a popular radio series, The English Family Robinson, and later having a play, Acacia Avenue, running in the West End, which was later adapted as 29 Acacia Avenue for release as a film. Writing with Dennis, Mabel was sure to make it clear that she was the senior and more experienced writer in the partnership. And she expected recognition of that fact, as seen in a letter dated 2nd of September 1937. Dear Mr Hamilton Mark, if you consult your files, you will find that you paid me £15 or guineas for both my conversations in the train. It was my nephew Dennis who got £12. I'm quite willing to accept the same fee I had before for this one. Ha, good for her. As Jilly says, Mabel was financially literate as well as everything else. But it's clear that not only was she creative, creatively bright, but she was also financially bright because she was determined in all her negotiations to make sure that she got equal pay. Um, and that's very clear from her letter to the BBC particularly. Um, and she was smart. I mean, she bought property. And even when she was still married and ostensibly living with us, she had a flat in London. She had a house in Sussex. She was living independently in many ways. And I think was probably too smart, really, to, um, to just be a mum and a housewife. Mabel celebrated the freedom that radio gave her to be whatever character you choose, since your appearance can neither help nor hinder. However, she warns that the microphone is merciless, though, to affectation and insincerity. The moment you cease to mean what you say, listeners will find you out. Hmm. Hello, listener. I hope this microphone isn't too merciless. In 1929, the director of outside broadcasting, Gerald Koch, sounded the alarm about increasing American influence in British entertainment. He worried over what he called the transatlantic octopus, with its tendencies towards mergers and acquisitions of music publishing, record labels and film studios. I mean, that could have been written in an article within the past few days, nearly a hundred years ago, and yet it still holds true today. And there's more. The fear was that American entertainment conglomerates might contract quality British artists and thereby severely limit our programme material, signalling the end of the BBC as an independent organisation and the advent of competitive and American influence broadcasting. 
There were concerns that American artists and programmes might eventually swamp Britain's distinctive cultural character if left unchecked. That fear of America snapping up British talent or the BBC not being able to compete against American media companies is just as alive and well today. The debate around how UK media companies Hello Channel 4 compete against America is literally happening as I speak. It's quite strange to read that this unease and alarm has been hanging around for nearly a century now. In a bid to prevent the loss of talent or shows, the BBC threatened artists who wished to broadcast elsewhere and implied to Mabel that should she sell Buggins material for broadcast on continental stations, they would no longer be interested in future material. Incensed by this, and I think understandably, Mabel shot back a letter to them to say she had to constantly produce new, new material for the BBC that could rarely be recycled. As she says, That material could be used for a year on halls, but I have to scrap it once it is broadcast. Only by being this extravagant have I kept my place as one of your best-liked comedians. Would you prefer that I write new stuff for commercial broadcasting rather than use up material that you have had and finished with? She went on to chastise the BBC for threatening her and reminded them of her long-term loyalty to the institution, as well as the fact she could make more money elsewhere. Again, not at all dissimilar to today's world where talent loyal to the BBC eventually gets snapped up by a higher paying commercial operation. In Mabel's case, the BBC didn't press the matter further and the Bugginses remained on the BBC and were also heard on Radio Normandy. In the late 1920s, the musical circuit was still more lucrative than radio. Mabel's peer, Helena Millet, left broadcasting to pursue fame in the musicals and it all but killed her career on the BBC. Mabel's longevity is due to both her loyalty to the BBC and the popularity of her family-oriented and radio-centric sketches. Mabel also capitalised on her radio-made celebrity by diversifying into areas beyond broadcasting. She tried her hand in musicals and despite admitting she was terrified, she must have done something right as she was offered a 12-week touring contract. I was engaged to top the bill at the Coliseum in a few weeks' time and I felt no triumph at all. I was terror-stricken. This was a job of which I knew nothing. Here's Jen to explain more about her long career. She's also thinking about her audience and she's also thinking about her career. Uh, because what you'll see is a number of other people who've started out as entertainers when she starts out as entertainers, again, their shelf life starts to, starts to go away mid-1930s. Um, some of them go off like Helena Millay and they go off into the middle, um, into the music circuit and they go and they don't do BBC stuff they go off they make a lot of money on music hall circuit when they're done they come back and the BBC says yeah we're not interested anymore and then they can't get jobs anymore so Mabel was really smart now maybe she was smart or maybe she was just really bad at music hall because we know she was bad at music hall there's a lot of people who talk about how bad she was she was small a really small person just tiny little thing on the stage and um, she just couldn't fill the stage. Um, and and she, her voice also didn't fill the stage. She was a radio performer. Um, and because of that, she never leaves the BBC. Um, she's always there. And, and you see with her correspondence, she's constantly like, hey, I wanna do this. Hey, I wanna do this. I have an idea for this. I wanna do this. So she's always up front and center with the BBC. In fact, the BBC behind the scenes sometimes are like, oh, okay, well, here she is again. 
Uh, now she wants to do this, or now she wants to do that. Clearly, Mabel had an endless supply of ideas. Not just for different shows, but ideas within shows. Somehow, she had to come up with 250 plot lines for the Bugginses. I asked Carolyn if Mabel's creativity in that regard was unique for the time. The comics of the day, um, who were music hall stars, they didn't want to get involved with radio because um, it meant generating new material each time to be to be broadcast because so many people heard it when they broadcast it on the radio. Whereas if they were uh, performing in the theatre, in the music hall, they could have one series of sketches or you know a stand-up routine or whatever that they could do over and over and over again. And they didn't have to constantly uh, either pay for new material or write new material. So um, in that respect, people were writing and performing material, but what made uh, Mabel different was that she did it for radio. And of course, for radio, she had to keep producing it. Um, and as, as you quite rightly say, she had to have lots and lots of ideas, which her 250 episodes of The Buggins demonstrate, um, you know, that she was able to think of a different situation each time for her characters, um, which was, I think, unique at the time. When we talk about writers today, ideas, writers, people who can continually come up with something new, um, they're, quite, they're still quite rare, um, and Mabel was definitely one of those. Even if Mabel was ultra keen on working in musicals, which she wasn't, her own mother was against the very idea of them, and Mabel was brought up believing that going to a musical was almost on par with getting drunk or stealing money. So, not exactly a ringing endorsement. And it wasn't just ideas for Mabel's own shows either. As Jilly says, her output was on several levels of productivity. She was so prolific. Um, obviously, the, the, you know, the Buggins family was huge and she turned that out and she churned that out. She created all those characters. But she was also doing all this other stuff and she was adapting Dickens and she was doing, I mean, she was doing so many things on different levels. And I think that is what is extraordinary about her. I think she just wrote, she just wrote an awful lot and she worked with, she wrote working with people, um, both as co-writers, but I think also in terms of performance, she wrote for performers, for herself and for other people. Um, but I mean, in a way, what's remarkable is that sketch writers now will maybe turn out a couple of sketches you know you look at the end of something you see all the people who've contributed and she's writing just reams and reams and reams of it and that brings us to the end of episode three i hope you've enjoyed the blow-by-blow -blow accounts of mabel's tough negotiations rightly stamping her place in the broadcasting sector a sector she understood better than most in the next episode we'll take a deep dive into two of mabel's most important shows and how she became a trailblazer in the development of two entertainment genres that we take for granted today, the sitcom and the soap opera. See you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of My Aunt Mabel. That's time you could have been doing something else, unless you were doing something else, in which case, well done for multitasking. So I appreciate you spending time to learn about the life and times of Mabel Constant If you've liked what you've heard and think more people should know about Mabel, 
please share the episode or the series with someone and leave a five-star rating and review. It helps others discover the podcast and Mabel's story. Feel free to get in touch if you have any questions, comments or feedback. You can email me at jack, J-A-C-K, at themediamoment.com. That's jack at themediamoment.com. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, Jack Shillito, with contributions from Jilly Bush-Bailey, former actress and Professor Emirata at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London, Jen Purcell, Professor of History and Chair of the History Department at St Michael's College in Vermont, USA, and Dr Carolyn Scott-Jeffs, a playwright and lecturer in playwriting and dramaturgy at the Loughborough University. The part of Mabel was voiced by my friend Kate Walker. Thank you to all four for their help and support. And of course, thank you to my wife, Denise, for her gentle nudging to keep going with the project and general encouragement throughout. To read more about Mabel, you can visit themediamoment.com forward slash Mabel dash Constant Juris. That's themediamoment.com forward slash Mabel dash Constant Juris. See you in episode four.